In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, I'd like to uh, begin with... uh, Maybe a little meditation. It's a combination of what uh, Thomas Watson and Charles Spurgeon wrote uh, regarding the incarnation and really the majesty of it, trying to wrap our minds around it. And I I think I've done this probably 50% of the Christmases I've ever had to preach on. I think it's, uh, to me, it's really encouraging. I hope it is for you as well. A virgin gave birth. The infinite became an infant. He who rules the stars sucked at the breast. The one who made the woman became made of the woman. The mother was younger than the child she bore. The mother was smaller than the child she bore. The God whose hand governs all things was handled by human hands. The supporter of the universe was carried in a mother's arms. The one who clothes the lilies was wrapped in swaddling cloths. He who provides kings their feasts was laid in a feeding trough. The God who neither slumbers nor sleeps slept in the cradle. He whose voice thunders in the heavens cried in the cradle. The God who made man in his own image made himself in man's image. The immortal clothed himself with mortality. The mighty God became weak. The creator of the ends of the earth became a creature on earth. He who gives power to the faint grew faint. The eternal agent of days was born into time. He who owns the cattle on a thousand hills became poor. The invisible God became visible. And the author of life was born to die. Just amazing ironies, paradoxes, mind-blowing concepts. How does he who created the world enter his own creation and still retain all of his glory and all the prerogatives that belong to him? Fascinating, beloved. No human mind could have ever conceived of this. It's why the gospel uh, to Greeks is just foolishness. Don't tell us that the creator entered into his own creation and still remained worthy of worship and praise. What I'd like us to walk through then, uh, just Luke 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. And uh, I'd like to start first with uh, just some interesting, the the whole passage is really pointing out that what what the world is doing around it, God is actually using to fulfill his own purposes. Caesar's busy doing his thing and God is busy doing his thing. And it shows us some, some sort of ironies or the way that our Lord works. So Luke has a little bit different angle on his gospel. Matthew's gospel is written largely to Jewish Christians filled with Old Testament quotes because they've got this puppy memorized by them by now. They want to know the fulfillment of everything. But Luke's writing to sort of a Gentile audience, Theophilus, and some of the, that whole mindset. So he's placing Luke and Acts really in the realm of world history. 
Luke wants to know, wants Gentiles to know that the Christian God is God over all history. So he does it by telling us certain markers in history that are going on when God shows up to act and also showing how God works through them. And I want us to notice, first of all, that while the world obeyed Caesar's decree, God acted according to his decree. Verses 1 through 3 of the passage, let me read them again. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So according to Caesar Augustus, it's time, Octavian, it's time to go and have everybody registered. Now, if this was the first census, which is is possible, I guess, but maybe not exactly possible that he took, uh, then this is the start of a census every 14 years that lasted for hundreds of years. We're not exactly sure. Um, if this, if the word first here actually meant before uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. So it would have preceded later censuses that we know are on the books. But regardless, the decree went out and everybody started uh, obeying uh, Caesar's decree. Everyone had to go to their own hometown to register. So Mary actually didn't have to go with Joseph. But by this time, we know from Matthew 1, they're, they're married um, even though the, the relationship had not been consummated, which is why they're just called betrothed uh, in Luke chapter 2. Uh, that's that's uh, a little bit of the, the difference between the two. But regardless, they are going to be registered. So Caesar's decree goes out over the whole Roman Empire, and everybody starts moving accordingly. But here's something interesting, and it has to do with God's decree. In Matthew 5.2, or Micah 5.2, the Lord said this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So at the beginning of Luke 2, you have Mary who's about, let's say, eight months pregnant, eight and a half months pregnant. She's about 90 miles from Bethlehem. And Mary and Joseph have given no indication of travel plans. They did not hop on Expedia. They didn't go to the local travel agent. They haven't been booking a flight or a hotel to stay in Bethlehem anywhere. Nothing. In fact, all we're given to understand is that Mary and Joseph are going to be having this baby right in Nazareth. And so the Lord shows up because Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem. The Lord uses this decree of Caesar to actually get Joseph and Mary going. In other words, God made travel plans for Joseph and Mary where they had none at this point. We're at a crisis point before Caesar makes his decree, but not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, he's going to send Caesar to make this decree so that indeed God's decree can come to pass and be fulfilled. And it was right on time. We know from Galatians 4, 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, so that we who are under the curse of the law can be redeemed from it and be adopted as sons and daughters of God. So it may look like Caesar's in control here, beloved, but he's not. God's the one in control. God's the one orchestrating this entire event according to all the prophecies that he mentioned in the Old Testament that would be fulfilled. I want us just to consider one thing before we move on. Do you ever look at the state level or the national level or the international level and start to think, it looks like God isn't in control. It looks like God can't be doing anything. Well, if you ever think that, it's wrong thinking when we think that. Here's a way of looking at the world stage. Caesar issues a decree, and God is bringing his son into the world by using that decree. 
Beloved, right now there's chaos going all over. Uh, there, there's always wars and rumors of wars. There always will be. There's always chaos in the world. There's always chaos on the country in which we're going to find ourselves living and in which we currently live. Beloved, God is always working through it. He's always doing something to build his church, to advance his kingdom in the midst of it, even if we can't see it. I doubt Joseph and Mary, I doubt everybody said, oh, this is how God's going to get the Christ to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to have Caesar issue a decree. I doubt very few people got that. But we get it because this is what's recorded for us in the Bible. And it gives us comfort, assurance. As bad as things may get, whatever is happening, God is working for his glory in the midst of it. Well, something else I'd like us to notice is that while Caesar assessed his glory, Christ left his glory. Again, verses 1 through 3, just the the whole idea of a census. One part of the registration was to see how many Roman citizens there were uh, in the empire. It was uh, a measure, David's census when he took it. Very sinful, 70,000 Israelites died. It's a way for a ruler to assess how, how great am I, how big's my empire. How many people are underneath my reign and rule to sort of get a, uh, to help him fathom or get his mind around just how important uh, he was. So Rome at this point had reached its zenith. We're in right around the time of the Pax Romana. We have Caesar Augustus now, not just any ordinary Caesar, Caesar Augustus. We've got roads throughout the empire that Paul is going to be walking on and using many of them to uh, expand the gospel. And so this decree goes out. Another way of saying it, Caesar wants to find out how great he is. A decree goes out, go and register so that I can know how big I am. I can know how superior I am. I can know how great a Caesar I am and how I stack up against all the other Caesars or all the other empires that ever have been or will come after me. Go figure this out. Register, involve yourself in the census. And beloved, nothing's changed down to today. Every single country, to some extent, is trying to figure this out, too. Right now, we live in America. We're trying to find out just how great we are, right? That's what, that's what politics is all about. What kind of a country do we have? We try and size ourselves up in comparison to other people. We're better at this. We're not good at this. We're more, we're, we're more powerful militarily. We like to size that up. We like to size up our GDP. We like to size up whatever it is, our population. You name it, beloved. But in the midst of all this going on, even down to our day, God does something radically different. Now, if you listen to the New York Times, the Pella Chronicle, the Washington Post, CNBC, Fox News, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, whatever I've missed, CNN, if you listen, you'll hear people sizing up the United States of America all the time. How we doing? Where are we strong? Where are we weak? But in the midst of all the statistics, the measurements, beloved, catch what God is doing. Philippians 2, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. At Christmas, what is God doing? Caesar is sizing himself up, and God empties himself by taking on human flesh. Jesus Christ could have sat in heaven, beloved, with no injustice done to anybody. It could have been God's decree that Christ would sit in heaven, the second person of the Trinity, never come down. And consider equality with God something to be held on to, grasped, and worshipped on account of. But he left all that behind. He left that glory behind, as it were, to come and be veiled in flesh so that we could behold him. 
Beloved, that's what gets us to stop at Christmas. <laughs> Leaders want their legacy to be spotless, right? People in power like Caesar, they want their legacy to be incredible. They hardly ever say, I was wrong. Someone else was right. They want the history books to write great biographies of them, praising them for their work. And what does Christ do? Empties himself of all of that and comes all the way down here to humble himself by becoming the form of a servant, becoming just like us. That totally flips glory on its head, doesn't it? That sort of silences the whole conversation. All of a sudden now we feel horrible or we should be for trying to boast in ourselves and make ourselves look really good and even be involved in these things in the, the political world or on, on the national stage, etc. What does it matter when here's who the real God is and here's how he lives and here's how he comes to save? It silences everything in, in a glorious way. Dorothy Sayers wrote this, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it was worthwhile. So, beloved, I don't know if your heart is set on your own personal greatness, but if it is this day then just take a look at what God considers great, emptying ourselves in the service of other people. That's real glory. That's true glory. And the incarnation proves that it is. But don't expect the world to walk by you and say, wow, you're tremendously glorious. Look how you've emptied yourself. In fact, the world may not even notice when we're serving in places that don't really count according to them. Well, the third thing I'd like us to see is that while Rome's king counted his riches, heaven's king left his riches. Again, part of the census is you figure out how many people are in the Roman Empire so that you can figure out what you're going to tax them. How much income are we going to bring in uh, into this Roman Empire so that we can afford to build more roads, build up Rome, whatever it is that we want to do with this. While this was going on, we're told in verse 7, Mary wrapped him in swaddling claws and laid Jesus in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Beloved, what a difference. Caesar's trying to figure out just how much money he's got coming in. And we have the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the Lord of lords, King of kings, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, coming into this world, born into, into what kind of family? A wealthy one, born into a family in Jerusalem that's of a kingly line. Is this Herod's son? No. Born into a poor family. So that Luke will tell us later on in chapter 2, they actually offer the poor man's offering (laughs) for, for their son when they go to the temple. Jesus had the riches of heaven and he entered poverty stricken humanity into a poverty stricken family. Love it. It's one thing if you see, if you see somebody go from uh, riches to rags, very difficult, very hard. If you've read accounts of them, uh, had them talk about the emotional difficulty, they had everything and they lost it. That is very emotionally difficult. That's what they've undergone here in this world. 
Imagine going from heaven's riches, because heaven's poverty is still way more than earthly riches. <laughs> Imagine going from heaven's riches, being an object of worship in heaven, to earthly poverty. The gap is so big, it's hard to even fathom, beloved, emotionally in every way. How does this happen? How does Christ undergo it? And that's how low our God stooped. And Paul put it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Think about that. When you watch Joseph and Mary go into lay, their little son, Mary's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, in a manger. There's not a place for them in the inn. She's wrapping him in swaddling claws. Absolutely ordinary. It's just like walking in, the, in an ordinary nursery ward uh, in, a, in a rural hospital somewhere or walking by a home birth, whatever the case is. No fanfare here, nothing incredible. Just Christ born into a poverty-stricken family. Spurgeon put it this way, without a doubt, the poor were immediately able to recognize his relationship to them from the position in which they found him. I believe it excited feelings of the tenderest brotherly kindness in the minds of the shepherds when the angel said, this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. In the eyes of the poor, royal robes do not excite affection, but a man in their own garb attracts their confidence. Working men will, with strong resolution, cleave to a leader of their own class in life, believing in him because he knows their labors, sympathizes with their sorrows, and feels an interest in all their concerns. Great commanders have easily won the hearts of their soldiers by sharing their hardships and roughing it as if they belonged to the ranks. Beloved, I don't know how many of us here are thinking, I'm just scared of Christ. I don't know if I can approach him. He's this fiery being that scares me to death. If that's the theology you might have surrounding the Lord Jesus, would you look at how approachable God made him? It's not an accident. Are you afraid to pray to him? Are you afraid to come to him and tell him all of your burdens, your sins, what's on your heart, what's really going down to the depths of your soul? Do not be afraid of this. You won't find a more approachable God in all the world. There isn't one. You won't find a more approachable human being. And his entry into this world proves it. There is nothing about Christ that is off-putting, that says, I'm better than you, which is amazing. There's nothing about Christ that says, don't come to me. You're not worth being in my presence. Nothing about him at all. And here he is, someone without sin, who could have been so nasty and mean to us. And yet in absolute humility, there he lay, beloved. So be drawn to him, come to him, live with him, pray to him, talk to him, build your relationship with him. This proves at least that there's no reason to prevent us from doing it. Another thing I'd like us to see is that while Rome's Lord upended his people to comfort himself, our Lord upended himself to comfort his people. Rome's Lord, Caesar, upended his people to comfort himself. Our Lord upended himself to comfort his people. 
Verse three, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the the house and lineage of David. So before we sort of hit this point on uh, Caesar upending people, but God actually upending himself to comfort his people, it's interesting that in verse four, we're told uh, the, the word David is mentioned, which has to do with kingliness. So what Luke is telling us is that we really have a battle of kings going on here. We've got Caesar as Lord, King, the the supreme of the Roman Empire. But we've got this other king who's coming to be born in the city of David, which strikes notions of kingliness in our minds. So we've got two different kings operating in two different ways. And here's how they operate differently. Caesar doesn't say, I'm going to go around, which would be impossible, by the way, but doesn't go around and say, hey, I'm going to come to all the people and count you up. Or I'm going to send out officials from Rome to go out and count other people. You, I don't want to disturb your life. I don't want to disturb your work. I don't want you to have to have travel all over the place to come and register. I'll take care of it. I'll serve you so we can do this. That's not what Caesar says. You go to your own hometown and register. You do the work. So there he sits, one decree, one edict, and it sets the whole Roman Empire really afoot, having to travel if you were away from your own hometown. But look at the way God, beloved, uses his authority to serve. He doesn't say, come to heaven if you can. I'll build a ladder down, just start climbing it up. He doesn't say any of that. The Lord comes to us. He uses his authority to serve. That's why Jesus could say, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them in Mark 10, and their great ones exercise authority over them, speaking of people like Caesar Augustus, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Beloved, when Jesus Christ came into this world, it tells us the way God uses authority. And God uses authority and wants authority to be used in order to serve and benefit other people. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the King of Kings, He was wounded for our transgressions. Why? He was crushed for our iniquities, but he doesn't have to do any of this. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, but we're his subjects. He's the ruler of the universe. Why would he do this? In order for God to have a people for himself, beloved. Why would he use his authority this way? Nobody uses their authority this way. Why does God do it? Because he loves and cares, because it's part of his nature, because that's our God. Beloved, rest your heart in that. Here, some of us may, may have a, a concept of God which goes like this. God is my master. I must obey him or he will come and get me. All right, think about this for a moment. God is your master. He is mine. He is your Lord. He is your king. And we are called to obey him unconditionally. Would you take a glimpse at the incarnation at the birth of Jesus, would you take a glimpse of the way he ministers to people? Would you glimpse what he does at Calvary and see if you can get anywhere, any sort of notion that he is a harsh taskmaster because he uses his authority to come down to the level of his subjects and of his servants saying, I'm going to walk right with you. 
I am Emmanuel, and I came down here to pick you up. I came down to earth so that you could be brought to heaven. In other words, God uses his authority over us to benefit us and bless us. Now that's huge, beloved, as far as applications go, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Suffice it to say this. In our homes, who are those of us who have authority? If we're parents, we have authority, right? Let's just make sure that in the spirit of Christmas, in light of what God has done for us and the salvation he's provided us and how he used his authority, let's just make sure we're using our authority to benefit and bless our kids, are we? Those of us who are husbands, we have authority over our wives, Ephesians 5. But the authority given to us doesn't give us authority to be tyrants, but to serve and bless. So are we husbands using our authority to serve and bless and benefit our wives? Let's ask them. For those of us who are in the civil realm, I don't know if any of us are, have authority in the civil realm. We're called to use that authority to bless the citizens that we're called to serve. In the place of work, wherever we have authority, any authority at all, are we using it to bless those underneath our charge? Beloved, that's how God wants authority used. His life proves it. Christ's life proves it as he lives on this earth. And finally, one more thing, and then with this we'll close. While men made room for worldly affairs, they made no room for Christ, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, the inn is sort of a, uh, you might call it a public place where travelers, we, we might call it a rest area alongside the interstate, but it was a little more fancy, a little fancier rest area. You could actually spend the night there. Um, now we just continue driving. We usually find motels and we make our destination in one day because we can drive at 70 miles an hour on the interstate. In this day, that wasn't really possible. So they're finding an inn, and sometimes this was like a, a four-sided place, maybe two stories tall. The people slept on the top and the animals stayed below. And there wasn't likely necessary in, necessarily an innkeeper. This may not have been a place of business, as it were. There was just no place for them to go because it was all full. Remember, the whole Roman Empire is doing what? Traveling at this point. So Romans are going to be staying in the inn as they travel around. Jews are going to be staying in the inn as they travel around as well. And so when Joseph and Mary showed up at at this, this place to sleep, there wasn't any room for them. Because the world's busy going about its affairs there's no room for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really a sad picture. It's, it's an interesting way that Luke portrays this. Why does he say that there's no room for them in the inn? Because the Holy Spirit wants us to get something. Caesar's issued his decree. All of Rome is trying to figure out how big we are, how much money we can take in for taxes. And yet the king of kings, the author of life, the savior of the world is coming into the world so that there should be this massive party, this huge pause sign overneath, over, over every country, over every province that says, here Jesus is coming into the world. The hope of the world, the Messiah is on his way. Stop, come take a look. And yet there is no pause. In fact, men don't even have room to give up their beds and say, yes, we have a, a lady that's giving birth. We'll vacate the room for the night. Here you go, Joseph. 
And I don't know what was going on in Joseph's life if he was banging door to door. Hey, do you have have room? My wife's ready to give birth. Uh, She's carrying the Lord, the the Messiah. I don't know if other Romans may have quit back and said, hey, well, Caesar's the only Lord. We don't don't acknowledge any other Lord, which, which may have been the case, maybe not. But regardless, beloved, there was no room. It, the, what the Holy Spirit, what is he trying to communicate? I think at least this much. The world really didn't care. As long as Caesar gets his way, we don't really care that Christ is coming into the world. That's why there's no room in the inn. Beloved, I ask you a question. I ask myself this question as well. Have you made room for the king? The world in which we live isn't going to be a friendly place for saying, why don't you stop, take a time out, pause, and just reflect on what's significant. The world in which we live consumes our minds if we allow it to. With advertisements, used to be billboards and signs and television. Now it's on iPhones. Now it's on, you name it, whatever devices we have, it's all over, beloved. It's mainly electronic. Beloved, do you make time to make room for Christ in the end of your own soul? You make time in the midst of all this material uh, prosperity, the giving of gifts, the sharing of time with other people, all these tremendous blessings. But are we making room for Christ, the most important part of the entire story? Because Caesar's decree was important. It was massive for the Roman Empire. What's more important, his decree or the coming of Christ? Obviously, the coming of Christ. In the midst of all of our busyness, Is Christ the focus? I'm not talking legalistically like we just have to read Luke 2 when we go home and then he's the focus now. No, where are our hearts at? Do we stop and marvel that God came in the flesh? Do we marvel that God cared enough about you and you and me to actually condescend to lift us out of the hell we deserve an eternal conscious torment that never stops? to have eternal life with him. And he's giving us the visible depiction of this at Christmas. Because God cares, beloved, whether or not we care about him as much as we should. God cares about you. God cares about me. He cares about all of his people so much that he condescended that far. Some Just amazing grace. So make room in your heart and life. Uh, Fill your heart and life up with Him. He's the only one that can satisfy all of our longings, even in the midst of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of presents. Let's pray.